0: But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com Bernice Tracy and the one and only Alec Babala. Thank you both so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, these names that I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon which is a wonderful place where you can go and support creators of the work that you like. So, if you'd like your name read in the opening credits of one of our shows um, and would like cool perks for donating, all you got to do is donate at least a dollar. And you can do that at patreon.com slash sleepy radio. So, if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's sleep and wake up more fresh the next day, consider uh, being a part of making the show. Again, that's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. So, um, if you've been following the Sleepy Podcast, whether it's uh, on this podcast feed or on Instagram, at Sleepy Podcast, uh, you'll know that I'm currently on a wonderful road trip across America it's been a truly special, pretty life changing trip um, seeing a lot of national parks and seeing old friends went to a wedding been working um, the whole way, kind of from the road and uh, it really has proven hard to find good quiet recording spaces especially cause I and moving around quite a bit. So, tonight, I'm going to repost one of my absolute favorite stories that we've read on the show, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And uh, fret not, when I am more stationary again back in Vermont, I'm going to record some extra episodes for you, some additional fresh content to make up for my time on the road. But in the meantime, enjoy this wonderful, snoozy reading of The Time Machine. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. traveler, for so it would be convenient to speak of him, was expounding a recondite matter to us. His gray eyes shone and twinkled, and his usually pale face was flush and animated. The fire burned brightly, and the soft radiance of the incandescent lights in the lilies of silver caught the bubbles that flashed and passed in our glasses. Our chairs, Being his patents Embraced and caressed us Rather than submitted to be sat upon And there was that luxurious After dinner atmosphere When thought roams gracefully free Of the trammels of precision And he put it to us this way Marking the points of the lean forefinger As we sat And lazily admired his earnestness Over this new paradox as we thought of, and his fecundity. You must follow me carefully. I shall have to controvert one or two ideas that are almost universally accepted. The geometry, for instance, they taught you at school is founded on a misconception. Is not that rather a large thing to expect us to begin upon, said Philby an argumentative person with red hair. I do not mean to ask you to accept anything without reasonable ground for it. You will soon admit as much as I need from you. You know, of course, that a mathematical line, a line of thickness nil, has no real existence. They taught you that. Neither has a mathematical plane. These things are mere abstractions. That is all right, said the psychologist. Nor, having only length, breadth, and thickness, can a cube have a real existence. There I object, said Philby. Of course a solid body may exist. All real things. So most people think. But wait a minute. Can an instantaneous cube exist? Don't follow you, said Philby. Can a cube that does not last for any time at all have a real existence? Philby became pensive. Clearly, the time traveler proceeded. Any real body must have extension in four directions. It must have length breath and thickness and duration but through a natural infirmity of the flesh which i'll explain to you in a moment we inclined to overlook this fact there are really four dimensions three which we call the three planes of space and a fourth time there is however a tendency to draw an unreal distinction between the former three dimensions and the latter because it happens that our consciousness moves intermittently in one direction along the latter from the beginning to the end of our lives that said a very young man making spasmodic efforts to relight a cigar over the lamp that very clear indeed now It is very remarkable that this is so extensively overlooked, continued the time traveler, with a slight extension of cheerfulness. Really, this is what is meant by the fourth dimension. Though some people who talk about the fourth dimension do not know that they mean it. It is only another way of looking at time. There is no difference between time and any of the three dimensions of space except that our consciousness moves along it. But some foolish people have got hold of the wrong side of that idea. You have all heard what they have to say about this fourth dimension. I have not, said the provincial mayor. It is simply this. That space, as our mathematicians have it, is spoken of as having three dimensions, which one may call length, breadth, and thickness, and is always definable by reference to three planes, each at right angles to the others. But some philosophical people have been asking why three dimensions particularly? Why not another direction at right angles to the other three? and have even tried to construct a four-dimensional geometry. Professor Simon Newcomb was expounding this to the New York Mathematical Society only a month or so ago. You know how on a flat surface, which has only two dimensions, we can represent a figure of a three-dimensional solid. And similarly, they think that by models of three dimensions, they could represent one of four if they can master the perspective of the thing. See? I think so, murmured the provincial mayor. And knitting his brows, he lapsed into an introspective state, his lips moving as one who repeats mystic words. Yes, I think I see it now, he said after some time, brightening in a quiet, transitory manner. Well, I do not mind telling you I have been at work upon this geometry of four dimensions for some time. Some of my results are curious. For instance, here is a portrait of a man at 8 years old, another at 15, another at 17, another at 23, and so on. All these are evidently sections, as it were, three dimensional representations of his four dimension being, which is a fixed and unalterable thing. Scientific people, proceeded the time traveler, after the pause required for the proper assimilation of this, know very well that time is only a kind of space. Here's a popular scientific diagram, a weather record. This line I trace with my finger shows the movement of the barometer. Yesterday it was so high, yesterday night it fell, then this morning it rose again, and so gently upward to here. Surely the Mercury did not trace this line in any of the dimensions of space generally recognized. But certainly a trace such a line, and that line, therefore, we must conclude, was along the time dimension. But said the medical man, staring hard at a coal in the fire, if time is really only a fourth dimension of space, why is it, and why has it always been regarded as something different, and why cannot we move in time as we move about? And the other dimensions of space. The time traveler smiled. Are you sure we can move freely in space? Right and left we can go. Backward and forward freely enough. And men have always done so. I admit we move freely in two dimensions. But how about up and down? Gravitation limits us there. Not exactly... Said the medical man. There are balloons. But before balloons, save for spasmodic jumping and the inequalities of the surface, men had no freedom of vertical movement. Still, they could move a little up and down, said the medical man. Easier, far easier down than up. And you cannot move at all in time. You cannot get away from the present moment. My dear sir, that is just where you are wrong. That is just where the whole world has gone wrong. We are always getting away from the present moment. Our mental existences, which are immaterial and have no dimensions, are passing along in time dimension with a uniform velocity from the cradle to the grave just as we should travel down if we began our existence 50 miles above the earth's surface. But the great difficulty is this, interrupted the psychologist. You can move about in all directions of space, but you cannot move about in time. That is the germ of my great discovery. But you are wrong to say that we cannot move about in time. For instance, if I am recalling an incident very vividly, I go back to the instant of its occurrence. I become absent-minded, as you say. I jump back for a moment. Of course, we have no means of staying back for any length of time, any more than an animal has of staying six feet off the ground. But a civilized man is better off than the animal in this respect. He can go up against gravitation in a balloon. And why should he not hope that ultimately he may be able to stop or accelerate his drift along the time dimension or even turn about and travel the other way? Oh, this, began Philby, is all. Why not? said the time traveler. It's against reason, said Philby. What reason? said the time traveler. You can show black as white by argument, said Philby, but you will never convince me. Possibly not, said the time traveler, but now you begin to see the object of my investigations into the geometry of four dimensions. Long ago, I had a vague inkling of a machine. To travel through time, exclaimed the very young man. shall travel indifferently in any direction of space and time, as the driver determines. Philby contented himself with laughter. But I have experimental verification, said the time traveler. It would be remarkably convenient for the historian, the psychologist suggested. One might travel back and verify the accepted account of the Battle of Hastings, for instance. Don't you think you would attract attention? said the medical man. Our ancestors had no great tolerance for anachronisms. One might get one's Greek from the very lips of Homer and Plato, the very young man thought. In which case, they would certainly plow you for the little go. The German scholars have improved Greek so much. Then there is the future said the very young man just think one might invest all one's money leave it to the accumulate at interest and hurry on ahead to discover a society said I erected on a strictly communistic basis of all the wild extravagant theories began the psychologist yes so it seemed to me And so I never talked of it until. Experimental verification, cried I. You are going to verify that. The experiment, cried Philby, who was getting brain weary. Let's see your experiment, anyhow, said the psychologist. Though it's all humbug, you know. The time traveller smiled around at us. Then, still smiling faintly, and with his hands deep in his trousers' pockets, he walked slowly out of the room, and we heard his slippers shuffling down the long passage to his laboratory. The psychologist looked at us. I wonder what he's got. Some sleight of hand trick or other, said the medical man and Philby tried to tell us about a conjurer he had seen at Burslem, but before he had finished his preface, the time traveler came back, and Philby's anecdote collapsed. The thing the time traveler held in his hand was a glittering metallic framework, scarcely larger than a small clock, and very delicately made. There was ivory in it, and some transparent, crystalline substance. And now I must be explicit, for this that follows, unless his explanation is to be accepted, is an absolutely unaccountable thing. He took one of the small, octagonal tables that were scattered about the room, and set it in front of the fire, with two legs on the hearthrug. On this table, he placed the mechanism then he drew up a chair and sat down. The only other object on the table was a small, shaded lamp, the bright light of which fell upon the model. There were also perhaps a dozen candles about, two in brass candlesticks upon the mantel, and several in sconces, so that the room was brilliantly illuminated. I sat in a low armchair nearest the fire and I drew this forward so as to be almost between the time traveler and the fireplace. Philby sat behind him, looking over his shoulder. The medical man and the provincial mayor watched him in profile from the right, the psychologist from the left. The very young man stood behind the psychologist. We were all on alert. It appears incredible to me that any kind of trick, however subtly conceived and however adroitly done, could have been played upon us under these conditions. The time traveler looked at us, and then at the mechanism. Well, said the psychologist. This little affair, said the time traveler, resting his elbows upon the table, and pressing his hands together above the apparatus is only a model it is my plan for a machine to travel through time you will notice that it looks singularly askew and that there is an odd twinkling appearance about this bar as though it were in some way unreal he pointed to the bar with his finger also here is one little white lever and here is another the medical man got up out of his chair and peered into the thing. It's beautifully made, he said. It took two years to make, retorted the time traveler. Then, when we had all imitated the action of the medical man, he said, now, I want you clearly to understand that this lever, being pressed over, sends the machine gliding into the future, and this other, reverses the motion the saddle represents the seat of the time traveler presently I am going to press the lever and off the machine will go it will vanish pass into future time and disappear have a good look at the thing look at the table too and satisfy yourselves there is no trickery I don't want to waste this model and then be told I'm a quack. There was a minute's pause, perhaps. The psychologist seemed about to speak to me, but changed his mind. Then the time traveler put forth his finger towards the lever. No, he said suddenly, lend me your hand. And turning to the psychologist, he took that individual's hand in his own, and told him to put out his forefinger so that it was the psychologist himself who sent forth the model time machine on its intermittable voyage we all saw the lever turn I'm absolutely certain there was no trickery there was a breath of wind and the lamp flame jumped one of the candles on the mantle was blown out And the little time machine suddenly swung around, became indistinct, was seen as a ghost for a second perhaps, as an eddy of faintly glittering brass and ivory, and it was gone, vanished, save for the lamp, the table was bare. The table was bare. Everyone was silent for a minute. Then Philby said he was Dan. The psychologist recovered from his stupor and suddenly looked under the table. At that, the time traveler laughed cheerfully. Well, he said, with a reminiscence of the psychologist. Then, getting up, he went to the tobacco jar in the mantel and, with his back to us, began to fill his pipe. We stared at each other. Look here, said the medical man. Are you in earnest about this? Do you seriously believe that the machine has traveled into time? Certainly, said the time traveler, stooping to light a spill at the fire. Then he turned, lighting his pipe to look at the psychologist's face. The psychologist, to show that he was not unhinged, helped himself to a cigar and tried to light it uncut. What is more, I have a big machine nearly finished in there, He indicated the laboratory, and when that is put together, I mean to have a journey on my own account. You mean to say that that machine has traveled into the future, said Philby. Into the future or the past? I don't for certain know which. After an interval, the psychologist had inspiration. It must have gone into the past, if it has gone anywhere, he said. Why, said the time traveler, because I presume that it has not moved in space, and if it traveled into the future, it would still be here all this time, since it must have traveled through this time. But, I said, if it's traveled into the past, it would have been visible when we came first into this room, and last Thursday when we were here, and the Thursday before that, and so forth. Serious objections, remarked the provincial mayor with an air of impartiality turning towards the time traveler. Not a bit, said the time traveler, and to the psychologist, you think you can explain that. It's presentation below the threshold, you know, diluted presentation. Of course, said the psychologist, and reassured us, that's a simple point of psychology. I should have thought of it. It's plain enough and helps the paradox delightfully. We cannot see it, nor can we appreciate this machine any more than we can the spoke of a wheel spinning or a bullet flying through the air. If it is traveling through time 50 times or 100 times faster than we are, if it gets through a minute or we get through a second the impression it creates will of course be only one fiftieth or one hundredth of what it would make if it were not traveling in time. That's plain enough. He passed his hand through the space in which the machine had been. You see, he said, laughing. We sat and stared at the vacant table for a minute or so. Then the time traveler asked us what we thought of it all. It sounds plausible enough tonight, said the medical man. But wait until tomorrow. Wait for the common sense of the morning. Would you like to see the time machine itself? asked the time traveler. And therewith, taking the lamp in his hand, he led the way down the long, drafty corridor to his laboratory. I remember vividly the flickering light his queer, broad head in the silhouette, the dance of the shadows, how we all followed him, puzzled but incredulous, and how there in the laboratory we beheld a larger edition of the little mechanism which we had seen vanish from before our eyes. Parts were of nickel, parts of ivory, parts had certainly been filed or sawn out of rock crystal The thing was generally complete, but the twisted, crystalline bars lay unfinished upon the bench, beside some sheets of drawings, and I took one up for a better look at it. Quartz, it seemed to be. Look here, said the medical man. Are you perfectly serious, or is this a trick, like that ghost you showed us last Christmas? Upon that machine, said the time traveler, holding the lamp aloft, I intend to explore time. Is that plain? I was never more serious in my life. None of us quite knew how to take it. I caught Philby's eye over the shoulder of the medical man, and he winked at me, solemnly. Chapter 2 I think that at that time none of us quite believed in the time machine the fact is the time traveler was one of those men who are too clever to be believed you never felt that you saw all around him you always suspected some subtle reserve, some ingenuity and ambush beyond his lucid frankness had Philby shown the model and explained the matter in the time traveller's words, we should have shown him far less skepticism, for we should have perceived his motives. A pork butcher could understand Philby. But the time traveler had more than a touch of whim among his elements, and we distrusted him. Things that would have made The frame of a less clever man seemed tricks in his hands. It is a mistake to do things too easily. The serious people, who took him seriously, never felt quite sure of his deportment. They were somehow aware that trusting their reputations for judgment with him was like furnishing a nursery with eggshell china. so I don't think any of us said very much about time traveling in the interval between that Thursday and the next, though its odd potentialities ran, no doubt, in most of our minds. Its plausibility, that is, its practical incredibleness, the curious possibilities of anachronism and of utter confusion it suggested, For my own part, I was particularly preoccupied with the trick of the model. That I remember discussing with the medical man, whom I met on Friday at the Linnean. He said he had seen a similar thing at Tubingen, and laid considerable stress on the blowing out of the candle. But how the trick was done, he could not explain The next Thursday, I went again to Richmond. I suppose I was one of the time traveler's most constant guests, and arriving late, found four or five men already assembled in the drawing room. The medical man was standing before the fire with a sheet of paper in one hand and his watch in the other. I looked round for the time traveler, And it's half past seven now, said the medical man. I suppose we'd better have dinner. Where's, said I, naming our host. You've just come? It's rather odd. He is unavoidably detained. He asked me in this note to lead off with dinner at seven if he's not back. Says he'll explain when he comes. It seems a pity to let the dinner spoil, said the editor of a well-known daily paper, and thereupon the doctor rang the bell. The psychologist was the only person besides the doctor and myself who had attended the previous dinner. The other men were blank, the editor aforementioned, a certain journalist and another, a quiet, shy man with a beard, whom I didn't know and who, as far as my observation went, never opened his mouth all the evening. There was some speculation at the dinner table about the time traveler's absence, and I suggested time traveling in a half-jocular spirit. The editor wanted that explained to him, and the psychologist volunteered a wooden account of the ingenious paradox and trick we had witnessed that day week. He was in the midst of his exposition when the door from the corridor opened slowly and without noise. I was facing the door and saw it first. Hello, I said, at last, and the door opened wider, and the time traveler stood before us. I gave a cry of surprise. Good heavens, man, what's the matter? Cried the medical man, who saw him next. And the whole tableful turned towards the door. He was in an amazing plight. His coat was dusty and dirty, and smeared with green down the sleeves. His hair was disordered, and as it seemed to me, grayer either with dust and dirt or because its color had actually faded. His face was ghostly pale. His chin had a brown cut on it, a cut half healed. His expression was haggard and drawn, as by intense suffering. For a moment he hesitated in the doorway, as if he had been dazzled by the light. Then he came into the room. He walked with just such a limp as I have seen in footstore tramps. We stared at him in silence, expecting him to speak. He said not a word, but came painfully to the table and made a motion towards the wine. The editor filled a glass of champagne and pushed it towards him. He drained it, and it seemed to do him good. For he looked round the table, and the ghost of his old smile flickered across his face. What on earth have you been up to, man, said the doctor. The time traveler did not seem to hear. Do not let me disturb you, he said, with a certain faltering articulation. I'm all right. He stopped, held out his glass for more, and took it off at a draft. That's good, he said. His eyes grew brighter, and a faint color came into his cheeks. His glance flickered over our faces with a certain dull approval, and then went round the warm and comfortable room. Then he spoke again, still as it were feeling his way among the words. I'm going to wash and dress, and then I'll come down and explain things. Save me some of that mutton. I'm starving for a bit of meat. He looked across at the editor, who was a rare visitor, and hoped he was all right. The editor began to question. Tell you presently, said the time traveler. I'm funny. Be all right in a minute he put down his glass and walked towards the staircase door again I remarked his lameness and the soft padding sound of his footfall and standing up in my place I saw his feet as he went out he had nothing on them but a pair of tattered bloodstained socks Then the door closed upon him. I had half a mind to follow, till I remembered how he detested any fuss about himself. For a minute, perhaps, my mind was wool-gathering. Then, remarkable behavior of an eminent scientist, I heard the editor say, thinking after his want in headlines. and this brought my attention back to the bright dinner table. What's the game? said the journalist. Has he been doing the amateur cadger? I don't follow. I met the eye of the psychologist and read my own interpretation in his face. I thought of the time traveler limping painfully upstairs. I don't think anyone else had noticed his lameness. The first to recover completely from the surprise was the medical man who rang the bell. The time traveler hated to have servants waiting at dinner for a hot plate. At that, the editor turned to his knife and fork with a grunt, and the silent man followed suit. The dinner was resumed. Conversation was exclamatory for a little while with gaps of wonderment. And then the editor got fervent in his curiosity. Does our friend eke out his modest income with a crossing or as he had his Nebuchadnezzar phases? He inquired. I feel assured it's this business of the time machine I said, and took up the psychologist's account of our previous meeting. The new guests were frankly incredulous. The editor raised objections. What was this time traveling? A man couldn't cover himself with dust by rolling in a paradox, could he? And then, as the idea came home to him, he resorted to caricature. Hadn't they any clothes, brushes in the future? The journalist, too, would not believe at any price and join the editor in the easy work of heaping ridicule on the whole thing. They were both the new kind of journalist, very joyous, irreverent young men. Our special correspondent, In the day after tomorrow reports, the journalist was saying, or rather shouting, when the time traveler came back. He was dressed in ordinary evening clothes, and nothing save his haggard look remained of the change that had startled me. I say, said the editor hilariously, these chaps here, Say that you have been traveling into the middle of next week. Tell us all about Little Roseberry, will you? What will you take for the lot? The time traveler came to the place reserved for him without a word. He smiled quietly in his old way. Where is my mutton? He said. What a treat it is to stick a fork in the meat again. Story, cried the editor. Story, be damned, said the time traveler. I want something to eat. I won't say a word until I get some peptone into my arteries. Thanks, and the soul. One word, said I. Have you been time traveling? Yes, said the time traveler, with his mouth full, nodding his head. I'd give a shilling a line for a verbatim no, said the editor. The time traveler pushed his glass towards the silent man and rang it with his fingernail, at which the silent man, who had been staring at his face, started convulsively and poured him wine. The rest of the dinner was uncomfortable. For my own part, Sudden questions kept on rising to my lips, and I dare say it was the same with the others. The journalist tried to relieve the tension by telling anecdotes of Hetty Potter. The time traveler devoted his attention to dinner and displayed the appetite of a tramp. The medical man smoked a cigarette and watched the time traveler through his eyelashes. The silent man seemed even more clumsy than usual and drank champagne with regularity and determination out of sheer nervousness. At last, the time traveler pushed his plate away and looked around us. I suppose I must apologize, said he. I was simply starving. I've had a most amazing time. He reached out his hand for a cigar and cut the end. But come into the smoking room. It's too long a story to tell over greasy plates. And ringing the bell and passing, he led the way into the adjoining room. You have told Blank and Dash and Chose about the machine. He said to me, leaning back in his easy chair and naming the three new guests. But the thing's in me are a mere paradox, said the editor. I can't argue tonight. I don't mind telling you the story, but I can't argue. I will, he went on, tell you the story of what has happened to me, if you like, but you must refrain from interruptions. I want to tell it badly most of it will sound like lying so be it it's true every word of it, all the same I was in my laboratory at 4 o'clock and since then I've lived 8 days such days as no human being ever lived before I'm nearly worn out but I shan't sleep till I've told this thing over to you Then I shall go to bed. But no interruptions. Is it agreed? Agreed, said the editor. And the rest of us echoed, agreed. And with that, the time traveler began his story as I have set it forth. He sat back in his chair at first and spoke like a weary man. Afterwards, he got more animated. In writing it down, I feel with only too much keenness and inadequacy of pen and ink, and above all, my own inadequacy to express its quality. You read, I will suppose, attentively enough, but you cannot see the speaker's white, sincere face in the bright circle of a little lamp, nor hear the intonation of his voice. He cannot know how his expression followed the turns of his story. Most of us hearers were in shadow. But the candles in the smoking room had not been lighted. And the only face of the journalist and the legs of the silent man from the knees downward were illuminated. At first we glanced now and again at each other. After a time we ceased to do that. And looked only. The time travelers face. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.